For 86 years I have served him, and he has done me no evil. How could I curse my king who saved me? I'm sure Daniel was thinking something like this when he walked up the steps to his room in Babylon after learning of this royal decree that anyone who worshipped any god except the king for the next 30 days would be put to death. Imagine it with me, right? Daniel is thinking to himself, trudging up his steps. I've been in Babylon service my whole life almost. I'm an old man now. I've served God as faithfully as I can all these long years in exile. And God has not forsaken me. How can I forsake him now? Well, you all know the end of this miraculous story, of course. If you haven't heard it before, then you just heard it right now. But the words that I started with, they're not Daniel's words. They belong to someone else. For 86 years I've served him, and he's done me no evil. How could I curse my king who saved me? It was the year 155 A.D., Babylon had long been eclipsed by a series of world superpowers, and now the Roman Empire rules over the world. The Roman Emperor Trajan had established a policy that Christians would not be sought out, but if they were brought before courts and refused to worship the emperor, they would be punished. Not too unlike the edicts that Nebuchadnezzar and Darius had put in place in Daniel's time. In a town called Smyrna, on the eastern coast of present-day Turkey, a group of Christians were accused under this policy for not worshiping the emperor, and they began to be tortured. However, their faithfulness in, this, in the face of death only enraged their persecutors further, who then sought out their leader to put him on trial as well. His name was Bishop Polycarp, an old man, 86 years of age. Polycarp was often offered a simple bargain, as all these Christians were. Curse the name of Christ, and you're free to go. It's as easy as that. His response? For 86 years, I've served him, and he's done me no evil. How could I forsake him now? He was tied to a post, and unlike Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel chapter 3, and unlike Daniel in the face of lions, he died for his faith. He was not willing to be swallowed up by Rome, and he paid for it with his life. Now, we're in Daniel. We're in the sixth week of our series in the book of Daniel. And each week we've been exploring the same big questions. How do we live in a foreign land as Christians? How do we fit in in this foreign land without being swallowed up by it? Now, we've seen some surprising similarities between our, uh, Daniel's existence in Babylon and our own lives of faith today in Vancouver or wherever you live somewhere else. Last week, we left off with the story of King Belshazzar, whose, whose opulent party, his opulent rager ended in his death. Belshazzar, remember, saw the writing on the wall telling him of his own sin and wickedness, and he chose to ignore it. He buried himself in debauchery and, and distractions, and his kingdom was taken from him that very night. Now, I know a lot of these passages and stories in Daniel we've explored might be well known. They're, they're very popular, even in our broader culture. This phrase, the writing on the wall, is kind of seeped in. Um, yet I'm pretty sure the story we have today is maybe the best known of all these Daniel stories. Daniel 6, Daniel and the lion's den. The story of God's dramatic rescue of his prophet, Daniel, from the mouths of the hungry, savage lion. Some of you may have been told it like this as a kid. Uh, I was. It's exciting. Um, our, go our goal today is to re-enter this story that we may know very well 
and continue probing it with our overall questions we've been asking all along. What can we learn from Daniel here that teaches us how to live in a foreign land? How does Daniel fit in in this story without being swallowed up? And what does it mean for us? The passage brings us into a similar situation as to that of chapter 3, when the people of God, then it's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they face a decision point, whether to give up their convictions of faith and keep their life, or deny their convictions and face certain death. For Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, it was the question of kneeling down and worshiping the great statue of Nebuchadnezzar. For Daniel, in chapter 6, it's a little different. It's a little simpler. Will he continue his daily rhythm of prayer or not? Will he keep walking on this path that he's been walking for many years now that his pious devotion to God is no longer allowed? What will he do? So the big idea we're going to explore in this passage today uh, is this. Whether the lions go hungry or fed, God saves his faithful people. Whether the lions go hungry or fed, God saves his faithful people. Remember chapter 5 closed with the, the death of Belshazzar and an introduction to his successor to the throne of Babylon, a man named Darius the Mede, uh, the new king. Now a quick historical note, if you're interested in these things, it's our perspective following several scholars that Darius the Mede is an enthronement name for Cyrus the Persian, who we learn about later in Daniel and in the book of Ezra as well. This is the king who released many of the Jews, uh, the captives in Babylon, back to Jerusalem to rebuild the city. Um, so when you hear Darius, think Cyrus. And we see the same fav favorable character uh, of Darius towards Daniel at the beginning of chapter 6 as well. Right off, he's uh, in, in good relationship with Daniel. If you want to know more about that, we can talk about it later. But Darius, he, he again appoints Daniel to a high position of authority in his kingdom. Daniel's appointed as one of the three presidents over the whole kingdom. And again, he prospers, as he did uh, as a young man under Nebuchadnezzar. This shouldn't be any, any surprise. He's been working in the Babylonian government almost his whole life. And as the story gets going, we see another parallel to chapter 3 again. We see that Daniel's faithfulness and his success as a ruler in his work um, in, in leadership and in his faith, it doesn't mean that everything simply goes well for him, does it? It does not mean that things just pan out for him on a nice, even up to the right trajectory to the right, uh, as we often hope life will. In fact, it's because of Daniel's faithfulness that he's attacked. Let's look at verses 3 to 5 together as the story begins. Daniel 6, starting in verse 3. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps, because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set over him the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful, and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. It's a story of envy, isn't it? It's a common response to the success of others around us. Envy is the core plotline to my favorite childhood movie, The Lion King. And this example has nothing to do with the, the brood of characters in the story later, I promise you. Uh, but if you know it, I hope you do, Scar 
broods in jealousy and hate over his brother, Mufasa, who is crowned king over him, which leads to his life of ongoing deep-seated envy towards his brother. He's this character that's filled with ongoing bitterness and hate. It is this root of envy that eventually leads him to murder his brother, Mufasa, and then attempt to murder his nephew, Simba, as well. It's a pretty violent plot when you put it like that. That's <laughs> what it's about. And this is what envy does to people. It drives us to hate the achievements of those closest to us, doesn't it? The ones we most wish were our own. Envy begins when the coworker gets the promotion that I wanted, and I resent him for it. Or when I look at my peers, maybe that I went to school with, 10 years ago, and then I decide to stack myself up against their accomplishments to date as opposed to mine. See how I've done. It's what drove Joseph's brothers to throw him in a pit in Genesis and leave him for dead. It's what drove King Saul to try to murder the young David after he defeated Goliath. Envy is the enemy, envy is the enemy of celebration. It disallows rejoicing with others. It takes that option off the table. Envy poisons the heart, and it leads us down a path of hate and discontent. Now, if you're struggling with envy, as a side note, the best thing that you can actually do is talk about it and bring it into the light with someone you trust. It's a really difficult thing to admit. I realize that. But bringing it into the light of, the, of repentance is the most powerful thing that distills this venom. Now, in Daniel's case, envy leads to his peers seeking his death, as it often seems to do when it's taken all the way to its end. This old Jewish exile, Daniel, he's doing a better job in the government than his peers were doing. And they know it. He's in the good graces of the king. He's being rapidly promoted. And they don't like it. They hate him for it. And so they conspire to kill him. Nothing about his civic service is in question. It's, it's all admirable. So they go to his faith. His ground allegiance that he's so stubborn about and he won't budge from. And they test his resolve there. Just how committed is he to the flourishing of Babylon and not being swallowed up and keeping his faith? So Daniel's peers, driven by envy, go to the king with a plan. Let's pick up the story in, in verse 6. Then these officials and, and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O king Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except for you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so it can't be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in the upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. So the satraps, the presidents, the counselors, the rulers, they all come and they apply public pressure onto Darius. Unify the kingdom, O king, with a period of exclusive worship. It's an easy sell to, this, to Darius for several reasons. First, it appeals to his pride. It's a, a request to lift his name high above all, all others, that he's the wise and the sovereign and the powerful one. Second, it's a politically savvy move. Centralized worship 
of the king strengthens his political power and protects his kingdom from, from different sects and dissident groups. So Darius signs the irrevocable junction. It is so. He can't go against it without absolute public disgrace. Now let's turn and look at verses 10 again. At verse 10 again. At this moment in time, what does it look like for Daniel to actively trust God in exile? Verse 10 tells us, When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open towards Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and, and, prayed and gave thanks to God as he had done previously. Daniel goes to his upper room, maybe thinking, for seven decades I've served God, and he has saved me. He has. He's done me no evil. How could I forsake him now? Daniel goes to his upper room, as he did every day, and he worships. He returns to that meeting place with the God of the universe, where he's delighted in, where he's beloved, where he knows who he is in the presence of God. He physically kneels on his knees and faces Jerusalem, the city, his city, that God has promised to restore. Yet at that moment, it's still laying in ruins from the Babylonian siege. It's an act of hope. Daniel's active trust in God manifested and is, is manifested in his daily habit of prayer and worship. He fixes his eyes back on God. He insists that the way things are in Babylon aren't actually the way things are according to God. He gazed towards Jerusalem once again and affirmed with his heart, You, O Lord, are God. You are one, and I will worship you with all my heart and all my soul. It's a profound response given the recent edict, isn't it? But it's also a relatively simple response. He's following his simple daily rhythm. Daniel kneels and prays and witnesses to the fact that God has saved him, that God has already saved him, just as he does every other day. Here we're seeing the fruits of a lifetime of obedience of his following God. Daniel's been so deeply formed by this relationship that then this act of civil disobedience that comes out, this kneeling and praying to anyone except for Darius, it flows out naturally. The narration of the story gives us no hesitation on Daniel's part or that he, he even pauses to, to stop and think about it. He knows this is where he must draw the line of resistance. He's come to one of these, again, one of these pivotal moments. If he submits to Babylon now, when it comes to worship, when it comes to the affections of his heart, he will be swallowed up. He doesn't even close the windows either to his chamber, does he? Nothing will change. This is a story of a man who knows God and lives in faithfulness to him. And because of this relationship, Daniel's able to be a peaceful presence amidst a terrifying situation. He knows who he is, and he knows who God is, and he knows God will be faithful to save him. He knows God will be faithful to save him, whether he is killed by the authorities or not. So Daniel kneels and he prays. And he is caught by his envious peers, of course, who are watching and waiting for this moment. And the report is taken to King Darius. Daniel, the exile from Judah, has defied your decree, and he deserves death. Darius' response shows us so clearly the fickleness and, and two-mindedness that's often in the, in the human heart. 
Darius wants to please his royal court and save face and save public uh, opinion. Yet he favors Daniel too, and he desires his release. He's grieved, but in the end, he follows custom and, and the edict stands. Verse 16 tells us that Daniel is thrown into the pit of lions. The climax of the story comes in verses 19 to 23. Then at break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the mouths of the lions. And they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. Daniel has been vindicated. He's miraculously rescued by the Lord. But why? Why is he rescued from the den of lions? Why in this way is he rescued? Well, the text gives us two answers. Daniel offers the first himself in verse 22. He says this, My God sent his angel and shut the mouths of the lions. They haven't harmed me because I was found blameless before him and before you, O king. So it's because he was innocent, Daniel says, of any sort of harm in the situation. He actually didn't do anything um, that caused harm, that he was given his life back. However, the, the narrator adds another reason in verse 23. Daniel was taken up out of the den and no kind of harm was on him because he had trusted in his God. So it's something about trust too. Daniel's faith that was what was led to his deliverance. And God's faithfulness to him let him deliver Daniel from sure death. Now this is good news, isn't it? God, rescues his, God rescued his faithful servant, Daniel, in a very tangible way. He gave Daniel his life back, and he let him continue to prosper, at least for the time being, in Babylon. And now, this is a classic passage about God's deliverance and his rescue of, of his faithful people. And it's beautiful. And, and as I thought about it and, and uh, wrestled with it over the last few weeks, um, one question continued to press on me that I couldn't, I couldn't let go of. It was this. What if the story had ended differently? What if verse 24 described Daniel's fate in the pit instead of his accusers? That before he reached to the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered him and broke all of his bones in pieces. What if he had been torn to shreds by the lions? If Daniel, God's faithful servant, had been brutally killed at the moment in time when he was faithful and resisted being swallowed up, what would that tell us about God? About his goodness and his faithfulness and his saving power? What would we say? Would it mean that God is distant? That he doesn't care? Would it mean that God forsook Daniel at his greatest moment of need? That he abandoned him like an orphan? When he was in greatest danger? <clears throat> these are big questions. You may be wondering these sort of questions yourself, either about this story or more likely about some situations in your own life. You may be thinking, God, I've been as faithful as I can. Why are you wrecking my life right now? Anyone else ever ask that question? 
I have. Now recall with me that band of Christians in Smyrna facing persecution. Their lives were being wrecked, I would say, to say the least. We began with one of their stories, Polycarp. Remember his unforgettable response? For 86 years I've served him, and he's done me no evil. How could I curse my king to save me? And then as he was being burned, he prayed the following. Lord, sovereign God, I thank you that you have deemed me worthy of this moment, so that jointly with the martyrs, I may have a share in the cup of Christ. For this I bless and glorify you. Amen. Now, did God abandon Polycarp then as he died for his faith? And why not rescue him? And what about his mentor, a man named Ignatius of Antioch, who who was also martyred? And tradition tells us he was thrown to beasts to be killed, just like Daniel. You and I aren't facing these exact types of trials, I doubt. But if we're honest, the trials that we do face, the challenges we do face, make us ask the similar sorts of questions, don't they? Where are you, God? Do you really care about what I'm going through? Why don't you deliver me from this mess? I know you can. I know you're powerful enough. You did it for Daniel. Why not for me? Here's what we need to hold fast to about God in light of Daniel's story of miraculous rescue on the one hand, and in light of Polycarp and Ignatius and the thousands of others who have been faithful to the end and still met a horrific end. Whether the lions go hungry or fed, whether God miraculously intervenes in a time and place, or whether it seems like he doesn't, God saves his faithful people. Remember, Daniel had already been saved, meaning he was already secure in God's family long before he was cast to the den of beasts. His story of rescue is a time and a place where God did miraculously intervene, isn't it? And we celebrate that intervention. We, we ask for it to God. We pray for him to intervene in our, in our lives. But even if he had not at that moment, Daniel was safe in God's hands because he, he belonged to God. And belonging to God means adoption into his family, and it's into a family that surpasses even the reaches of death. Let me be blunt about this. I can't explain how and why God chooses to intervene sometimes, and then sometimes it seems like he doesn't. But if we remove the promise of Scripture that we have eternity in our hearts, and that to be with Christ, to be with him is our sincere hope, and desire, and that our ultimate salvation and joy will be fulfilled when we actually stand before God, if we remove this, we lose the core hope of our faith. The exact hope that encouraged Polycarp and the others to remain faithful to the end. If we make it all about life here, we just might forget about the more important life that is to come. That has come in Jesus, but that is coming. And we just might lose it. Remember the words of Jesus on this? For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet lose his soul? God does miraculously heal and rescue and deliver here and now. And I want to see more of it, don't you? And I hope and I pray and I ask for the kingdom to come more and more now. But our hope doesn't rest at the bedrock on these things. It cannot rest there or it becomes about God fulfilling our wishes and dreams and not about us joining in his work of salvation that God does in God's way, at God's time, at God's pace.
Now, one thing I can affirm about his works of redemption, like rescuing from the lions, is that when God does this, it's always for the sake of others, too. We see Darius, though the mixed bag that he is, he comes to exalt the name of the Lord because God rescued Daniel. We see this all over the Gospels, too. Jesus heals the man in Mark chapter 2 who is lame so that the others around might know that the Son of Man forgives sins. It's always a proclamation of who God is. But even in the times of his apparent absence, too, in Polycarp's case, in Stephen's case, in the book of Acts, who was stoned, in your life and in my life, when it feels like God simply isn't there, the faith of the faithful that is nourished by Christ and joined with Christ and his faithfulness, it's what becomes a powerful marker of God's presence and a witness to his power, too. It's the faith of the faithful that does it in these situations. Whether it's the face of, of a den of lions, the face of a fiery furnace, the face of a Roman execution. It's the faith of the faithful. Whether facing physical suffering that's chronic and ongoing, financial crises, crushed relationships or dreams, or just the ongoing week and week in, week out grind of life in what seems to often be a very godless city, this is what becomes a profound marker of God's presence and power as it is nourished by Christ and joined with him. It's the faith of the faithful. And guess what? The good news is that faith is a gift. We don't have to conjure it up, up ourselves. It's a gift from Jesus who gives it to us. And even when our faith is feeling weak, he offers us his. Now, God's faithful character is put on powerful display through his deliverance of Daniel. And his faithful character is also put on display in, in the lives of all of those who are willing to stand and be faithful and avoid being swallowed up by the surrounding culture. Friends, and isn't it shockingly beautiful that in Jesus Christ, our Lord, in his ultimate trial on the cross, that God revealed his faithfulness that suffers to the point of death like the martyrs and his faithfulness that delivers miraculously from the grave, like he did with Daniel. We see them both in Jesus and his experience in the cross. And Jesus, the God who came and delivered Daniel from the pit of lions, he himself gets ripped to shreds with whips, is himself thrown into a pit, a pit that's then sealed with the royal seal of the kingdom of man of the day. And he himself stares death into the eye and he perishes. In his suffering, God says to his children who suffer, you are mine. I suffer with you and you are mine. Your scars are mine. And in Jesus' resurrection, God says to all of those who are delivered by him, who, who is ultimately all who belong to him, who have that faith, that no harm will come to you. You are rescued from the pit because you've simply trusted and you are safe. This is who God is. He saves, friends. He saves whether the lions go hungry or fed in the story. He saves because whomsoever calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that man who is God, who has poured out his divine life for us, whoever calls upon his name will be saved.